welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here with my co-host Kate Price-McCarthy. Hello, Kate. Hi, Hattie. Good to see you. And thanks to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. And for that, all you need is your library membership number and PIN. Our guest author this episode is Louise Candlish, who's enjoying a real streak of success at the moment. Yeah, her latest book, The Heights, is just about to come out. Her last book was a huge bestseller, and they've just started filming another of her books for a major TV series. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but we've also been chatting to Anne-Marie from Borden Library about some of her favourite reads, as well as giving us a bit of an insight into life at libraries now that restrictions have eased. It's so great to be seeing people back inside libraries again, especially now with our annual summer reading challenge in full flow. At the time of recording, an amazing 13,000 children in Hampshire have signed up to take part. And the summer holidays have only just started, so we're looking forward to seeing plenty more. We'll be talking about other library updates later on in the episode, but for now, let's hear from our guest author, Louise Candlish. Louise is a writer who's had extraordinary success in recent years. She's written more than a dozen books, but it's been a move to psychological thrillers which has brought her to a much wider audience. Two of her recent books are currently being developed for the screen, including Our House, which stars, among others, the fabulous Martin Constant from Line of Duty. And that's due to hit our screens in a three-part adaptation in 2022. Yes, and I'm going to be really interested to see the casting for The Other Passenger, which is the other of her books that's being filmed. That came out last year and was also a number one bestseller. In the interview for this episode, she's talking about her brand new novel, The Heights, which is described as a nail-biting story of revenge, obsession and and vertigo. Here's Kate talking to Louise. The interview starts with Louise reading a short piece from the start of the novel. This is right at the beginning of the book. Killing time. Opening lines are hard to write, says Felix Penny, and he of all people should know. The author of three writing manuals and nine crime novels, he's one of the most high-profile creative writing tutors in the UK, with a prestigious class at King's College London. How will you start your feature, he asks me, deftly preempting my questions for him. With the setting, I reply, playing along. Nice choice, he says. A good safe entry point for any narrative. And so, with Mr Penny's blessing, picture, if you will, a small library on the outskirts of a mid-sized Berkshire town. It's a standard, underfunded community space with scuffed furniture and a pair of antiquated radiators leaking just enough heat to stop the cold from creeping to the bone. Dust motes hover in the thin winter sunlight. I'm here to sit in on a session run by Penny that is fast gaining a reputation beyond these book-lined walls and, as his students arrive, I count myself extremely fortunate to have so little in common with them. For this is a course designed to explore the impact crime has had on their lives. Violent crime, for the most part. Take ownership of everything you've been through, Penny urges his class. Dig as deep as you dare. You'll be amazed by the power you have to unearth the missing pieces of your story. I still don't know how to begin, complains one woman, something of a slow starter given that this is the third time the group has met. No one ever knows, Penny sympathises, and he inspires her by reading aloud the first chapter of another student's work, one who is progressing rather better. As he reads, the opening line is a doozy, just you wait. 
I find my gaze resting on the author. Sharp-boned and fair-skinned, she's not as beautiful as she once was. By my reckoning, she's closer to 50 than 40 these days. But she has a quality to her that's impossible to tear your eyes from. A charisma, a pathos. I recognise the face, of course, and to an extent I already know the story. At least I think I do. Michaela Ross, Sunday Times Magazine, December 2021. Thank you so much for joining me on the Love Your Library podcast and many congratulations on your new book. Your story, it's got rather an intriguing structure and that it's primarily Ellen telling her story, but the narrative is framed and intercut by this magazine feature about the writing process. Now, I'd I'd like to talk to you about what that structure has allowed you to do. But first of all, could you tell us a bit more about the story told in Ellen's book within a book? Ellen is writing a true crime memoir in a writer's workshop, and her story involves her um, parenting of her son, Lucas, who, when the story begins, he's 16. And she's a kind of, on the neurotic side of parenting, she's very overprotective. And she's sort of, you know, very in love with her son in that way you sometimes find mothers are because he's a golden boy. He's extremely clever. She hopes he'll go to Oxford or Cambridge. He's sporty. He's popular. He's good looking. And into his life comes this boy at school who is, as Ellen sees him, an evil influence. She, She genuinely thinks he's an evil boy, not just a, you know, party animal. And he's come from a troubled background and he's physically unattractive and he's extremely rude to her. And and so she very quickly loses the closeness that she has always had with her son, Lucas. And after a painfully short time of this boy, Kieran, being in their lives, tragedy strikes and Ellen and Lucas's father, Vic, find themselves grieving the loss of their son. And they react in, in a very extreme way. So this is about revenge, this story, and basically the revenge that Ellen takes on her son's best friend. So it's an unusual rivalry. It's an unusual sort of dynamic to have in, at the centre of, of a book. And I chose it because it was unusual. I, I knew I wanted to write about revenge, but I didn't want to follow up excellent books that have been written before, often involving couples or siblings. I hadn't seen that parent, best friend of child dynamic lately. And so I thought I'd tackle that. I mentioned the unusual structure of the book because it meant as a reader I immediately had lots of questions and theories about Ellen's story it kind of raises questions about the accuracy of her narrative because we know we're not listening to her thoughts but instead we're hearing her carefully constructed version of events so was that your intention with this framing? Yes, definitely. I I do like to have unusual structures. I love a, a story within a story. And I've done it before with our house. But I don't like to do it in a kind of gimmicky, contrived way just because I can. It needs to be integral to, you know, the psychology of the character. So, you know, there's a very good reason why, as the author, I don't present events. I need it to come through Ellen. She's a classic unreliable narrator, but, you know, she's not that unreliable. Maybe she's pretty reliable when it comes down to it. But I needed her to control her narrative because she has a very good reason to want to control her story. And though you are given um, a glimpse inside someone else's head, she's trying to control what happened. And that's partly her personality, but it's partly reasons to do with the crime plot. And then 
the Sunday Times journalist who was interviewing her because Ellen's first attempt at writing is so good that she gets a publishing deal. And so the Sunday Times interviewing her pre-publication and through the journalist, you might start to get some clues that she's a bit doubtful about Ellen. She's not that impressed with her. She maybe finds her a bit annoying and a bit intense. And so I, what I guessed would happen would be the Sunday Times journalist would be able to voice some of the questions and doubts and opinions that the reader is having as you go along. So you get sort of maybe 10 of these little excerpts from the Sunday Times feature. She describes this relationship between, as you've said, this overachieving son, Lucas, and this new boy at school, who from the outset is described as really every parent's worst nightmare. Could you tell us a bit more how you came to create this character, Kieran? Because in one way, he's so negative, but in other ways, he's very charismatic. He is. He's, he's one of those kids who is very focused on their peers. We all know kids who are incredibly charming with, with parents and they tend to be um, other students' parents' favourites because they just interact up very well. But Kieran is the opposite. He has had a life mostly in care. He doesn't trust good relationships he has had. So his power comes through his interaction with his peer group. So he's hugely charismatic. He's great fun. The fact that he's rude to adults is probably vicariously wonderful to his fellow students in the sixth form. He's just got that edge. He's one of those edgy, cool kids. And the fact that he isn't physically attractive means that his personality has to be even more magnetic to win people over. But he doesn't bother doing it with the parents. And, you know, right from the start, he's very rude to Ellen. And in terms of building his character, I hadn't really made any character notes about any of the main characters. And I hadn't thought an awful lot actually about the teenagers before I started. I was very focused on who Ellen would be and who Vic would be and Ellen's husband, Justin, the three lead adults. So the teenagers developed as I wrote. And then there was, a, you know, a lot of polishing afterwards and layering of some of their physical characteristics and their idiosyncrasies and you know the body language and you know some of the things Kieran does he he's one of these people who's always playing with his hair and pulling at his hair I added that sort of tick you know later in the process I didn't know that initially so I built him up over several drafts so it's just started off with the rudeness and then added that the kind of coolness, because I've always found the most sinister baddies, the ones who are quite mildly spoken, kind of all knowing rather than someone who's violently physical and volatile. I actually find very mild mannered people, baddies, more sinister. So he's very much in that mould. As we've talked about, it's made pretty clear from the start that this friendship ends in disaster. And of course, with the death of Lucas, and Ellen's grief and loss is a, quite a constant throughout the book. And this isn't the first time you've written about this kind of loss. And it's extremely moving to read. Is it incredibly hard to write? Yes, it is. And it, it clearly is me sort of working out my own fears as a, as a mother. And you're right, I did, I've done it before in an early book of mine, Since I Don't Have You, a small, much younger child is killed in a school trip accident. I found that much more of an emotional process. I was a much less experienced writer. I was almost method writing that book and would often be in tears. But by now, I'm, I'm much more experienced. I can sort of disconnect 
but still hopefully have the, the authentic emotions. But also I was very focused on the plotting and the structure of the book. And so I didn't allow myself a you know, huge amount of time to go really deep into the emotions. I just used my imagination and you know, my own worst fears. And there is something particularly hard, I think, about losing a teenager of that sort of age. He's 18, 19 when he dies in the book. You know, right at the beginning of adult life, you've literally just waved off. You know, you've done your job. Maybe you're not a perfect parent, but gone off to university and all of life is ahead of them and, and they're independent now. And so for that to be cut short, I think is just, you know, the most appalling tragedy. So just thinking about it, I could, I could immediately connect with the emotions. I think it's really going to resonate with parents of teenagers. And we just launched it actually last night. And my two special guests, Lisa Jewell and TM Logan, we discovered that we each have an 18-year-old. There's not going to be a single parent who won't identify with it. Hopefully, they haven't been through a similar experience, but they certainly would have at some point encountered that fear that it could happen, I think. Now, you've talked about how uh, revenge is a really strong theme within the book, but I would have also said the idea of forgiveness is as well. Is that an issue that you were keen to tease out as well as the revenge? Yes. Well, there's a line in the book, you know, probably about seven eighths of the way through when Ellen is addressing the reader and she says, oh, you might be surprised that this is the first time I've used the word forgiveness because she simply won't entertain the idea of forgiveness. She, in the opening, I think it's the first or second page of her narrative, she says, I know that when I say this, my daughter is revolted, but I will never forgive him. And I mean, never. And she carries that through right to the end. I think I find it really fascinating because to me, it seems, you know, it must be the case that the only way to deal with a tragedy like that is to somehow make peace with it, not necessarily to go through any kind of restorative justice system and get to know the um, perpetrator or even put yourself in his shoes, but certainly to attempt to forgive, I think must be a big part of the, the process, but she's simply not willing to do that. Her former partner, Vic, who's Lucas's father, he is, he's more open to that idea, as is her husband, Justin, but she is a hardline, unforgiving, grieving mum. It's awful listening to you because I'm so realised how much Helen is like me, overprotective mother, never be able to forgive. Oh, yeah, I would be very hardline. But they may not do it. I mean, hopefully we'll never be tested. And that's the, that's the great thing about sort of psychological thriller or drama like this is that you can work through those feelings and you can relate them directly to your own family and your own life. But mercifully, the vast majority of us will never be tested. We'll never actually have to find out whether we we could forgive in that situation. I sincerely hope we'll never have to find out. Ellen's doing it for us. Well, exactly. And I'd say that's something that your books excel at, is putting ordinary people, people that we can relate to in these extraordinary situations and seeing where we could think, how would I have reacted? Would I have done the same thing? Now, another recurring topic in this book is Ellen's, I'm going to call it fear of heights. It's not so much acrophobia but the weird sensation that some people get as this this urge to throw themselves from high places and it's a really 
it's a great device to have within the plot. And it also gives us quite an interesting insight into Ellen's psyche. So can you tell us a bit more about this weird phenomenon? Because there is actually a technical name for it, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. First of all, I suffer from it myself. So I've been waiting for an opportunity to use it in a book. And in fact, I have had another character who had a fear of heights. But as I remember, she didn't feel the urge to throw herself off cliff tops or roof terraces. So yes, it's called High Place Phenomenon. And the French call it l'appel du vide, call of the void, which is much more romantic sounding. And that's the label Ellen prefers to use because she's quite artistic. And it's basically a form of anxiety. It's an, it's an intrusive thought where when you are in these situations and it will be an open high place. So it wouldn't happen if you were you know, in one of those skyscrapers with floor to ceiling glass. It wouldn't happen there. It happens when you're, say, on a, on a pier or on a um, lighthouse or a roof terrace or anything where there's a barrier that's quite low, you know, a sort of balcony, that kind of thing. And where generally the drop would be fatal if you were to lose control and give in to this strange intrusive thought. So yes, you just have to manage it. And I find that it's best not to put myself in that situation in the first place. But if I am, I wouldn't give in to the urge, but it really is a strong, a powerful feeling. If you lost control, you could just step off this right now and then you'd be dead. It's, that's how your, your mind speaks to you and you have to talk yourself down. I'm not sure what the official figures are, but because I always thought it was maybe, say, one in 20 who have it. But the other night I was out with um, my publisher for a, a dinner and there are about 10 of us and two of us have it. So when I do events, I find that quite a few people have got the same urge. So I think it's maybe one in five in reality, but we just don't know what it is. And in a kind of, you know, milder, more comic form, it might be that feeling you get, which again, I get all the time. Say I'm walking across a bridge over the Thames, I might have the urge to throw my bag over the bridge into the water. And it's like a self-destructive urge because, you, you know, you wouldn't be harmed, but your day would be ruined. It would be a nightmare. But you have this urge. It's <laughs> To people listening who don't have it, they must think, God, she's a lunatic. But it is more common than you'd think. It is a weird one, isn't it? Because how can that possibly help us survive as a, as a human race, that urge to do that? Yeah, but it's a dysfunction. It's a dysfunction. And in terms of the book, it's a great metaphor for Ellen. It's a great, it represents so much of what she's struggling with. You know, the bottom line in this book is that she takes knee-jerk, perfectly justifiable and primitive emotions. And rather than feeling that initial anger and then moving on, she acts on them. And so I think that this urge to jump is she's exercising more control over that than she is over more justifiable emotions. It's really, she was an interesting character to write. She's quite complicated. But there's enough of her, I think, that we can relate to. But she's, she's definitely slightly malfunctioning. It must be an incredibly exciting time for you with the new book out. And I see they've just started filming one of your earlier books, Our House, with a fantastic cast. And that's going to be out on ITV next year. So could you tell us something about that process? And has it been like a dream come true for you? It has. I mean, I've had a few books optioned for the screen and sometimes the producers will, you know, they'll do everything they possibly can to get a commissioning editor or a broadcaster interested and it just bites the dust. I think the, the success rate is, I don't know, 
1% or something for books are optioned. It's very, very low. So when, when you get the exciting news that your book's been optioned, you have to celebrate it for what it is rather than genuinely expecting it to happen. But this genuinely did happen. And so, you know, I know I'm very lucky. The team at Red Planet Pictures are so good. And, and I did have a sense that it might happen because they had an amazing writer on board right at the beginning, Simon Ashdown. He just got the book so brilliantly. And I just felt like if anyone was going to do it, they would do it. So the process, I guess, took, we had our first meeting when I was met with lots of production companies, probably in the autumn of 2018, which was when the the paperback hit the bestseller lists. So two and a half years, I suppose, little more than two and a half years from that first meeting to casting. And that's probably pretty fast. I think. So of course, I'm absolutely thrilled. I only found out about the cast myself about a week before ITV announced it, because there were some issues with whether one of the leads was going to be available at the time they needed to be. But yeah, I, I just couldn't be happier. I've met Tuppence Middleton before, actually. She read the audiobook of those people. So I'd met her in the studio and I knew how incredibly talented she was. And so I was just, you know, punching the air when I heard she'd signed up and she had to come straight from the Downton Abbey movie. And they're all so in demand. And Martin Comston, who, you know, is all our favourite actor right now. He has come directly from a shoot in Scotland called The Rig. And so he started just a, a week or two after the other leads. But the wider cast is fantastic as well. It is a dream country and it feels quite surreal. I will be visiting the set. Just before we spoke, I was just trying to sort out a date to go. And I think only when I actually go and see the interiors of the house and see Bram and Fee and Toby and the kids and Merle and all the friends, when I see them, then it will feel real. But I did attend the Zoom read-through, which was helpful in making it feel real rather than still just a figment of my imagination. And it was amazing to see these incredible actors bringing my characters to life. So can I ask finally, what are you working on at the moment? I'm working on a book that doesn't have a title yet, but it's another book that has two strands, but this one differs from anything I've done before in that the main strand is set in the 1990s. And I do wonder if that came out of the misery of of the last 18 months. And I just really wanted to go back to a time that I remember as a a time of freedom and um, hedonism and fun because the 90s is very much my heyday. Having said that, the kind of things that are happening in my story in 1995 are pretty horrible. There's a strand set in the 1990s. It's very influenced by Barbara Vine, this one. I had a big Barbara Vine obsession about a year ago. Barbara Vine is one of my absolute favourites, so I'd be very excited about that. Oh, well, I hope. Maybe maybe I'm bigging it up by making that parallel, but I feel very influenced by her at the moment. And particularly, you know, having read for the first time A Dark Adapted Eye and A Fatal Inversion. And so I I can see, you know, I I think that someone who's read those books will be able to see that I've been influenced. It's got that kind of vibe to it rather than the, the Hitchcock vibe, which I think The Heights has or The Other Passenger. But I've really enjoyed it. But I have been so busy. I probably haven't spent as much time on it as, as I would like. So I'm just trying to carve out time to really go deep into it and crack it. Oh. 
I also really enjoyed the coincidence that this book and one from another of our recent podcast interviews both open obscurely at St Saviour's Dock in London. Uh, You might remember Philippa Gregory's book was also set there, although a few hundred years earlier. I love that kind of spooky coincidence. Okay, so on to the next section of the podcast, for which we're joined by Anne-Marie from Borden Library to talk about her reading recommendations and what life is like at this Hampshire library. We'll include links to the books we mention in our episode show notes. Welcome to the podcast, Anne-Marie. Thank you, Kate. Hello, Hattie. Nice to be back. You might remember when Anne-Marie joined the podcast last year when we talked about Lem Sisse's memoir, My Name Is Why. You'll find that podcast on our back catalogue. It's the one with the interview with Heather Morris back in September 2020. So, Anne-Marie, tell me what life is like in Borden Library at the moment. For instance, have baby rhyme times resumed? Yes, they have. In fact, we have one this morning that was very well attended, very lively and very fun. Now, I'm guessing you've got quite a few children as well coming in for the summer reading challenge. Yes, we have. We've had 14 finishers that I can think of and more signing up. I was looking up at the statistics. I think there's about 200, if not more, who've signed up to take part. And uh, the theme this year is Wild World Heroes, which is all about sort of ecology and conservation and stuff like that. What, What do you think of that? I like that one and we've linked up with Deadwater Trust to do a few things as well that they run the local nature reserves round board. That's a lovely idea. Uh, Yeah so you've said you've had quite a few finishes already let's hope more to come. Yes I'm sure more to come we've still got a long way to go and summer holidays have only just started. Anne-Marie we asked if you had any book recommendations that you wanted to share with us. Would you like to tell us about the book you've chosen? What's it called and what's it about? The book I chose, and you have no idea how difficult it is when you're a book lover to choose one, is Eva Ibbotson's The Secret Countess. And it's about a Russian countess. They leave after the Russian Revolution. They have to. Their beautiful jeweled world falls apart. And then she goes into service at an English country house because she wants a job and that's where it's hiring and so basically we have a countess working in the servants quarters yeah no i was just going to ask about when you discovered it for the first time i discovered it at secondary school i was 12 or 13 i think when i i was looking for something to read picked it up off the shelf read the blurbs saw that it was a historical novel and it lived in my book bag for about the next two months until i had to give it back what did you like about it at the time and is it one that you've reread? Oh, it's definitely one I've reread. I haven't read it for a few years now, so it was lovely to get it back off the shelf. I think I, I loved some of her description. I loved what she created. I loved or loved or eventually loved to hate some of the characters. You come to care about them and love them and want things to go right. I think what I liked about it more than anything else was the writer's sense of humour. It had me, it did have me laughing out loud several times. I really enjoyed hearing about, for example, the local dressmaker. She apparently couldn't do arms and uh, and this this tailoring problem that she has sort of is a running thread through the book and even comes up right at the end there's a lovely call back to it towards the end of the novel yes and she's got a, she's got a very dry sense of humor just it's got so much heart as well that's what i think has really kept it as special for me it has a great cast of characters as well doesn't it so you've got yes. all the servants at mersham hall all the family and the neighbors and uh, together with the the cast of the russian characters as well a little bit cartoonish at points but some of them were really really well done what do you think about the characters 
she's done an excellent job with them. Even ones you see very briefly, you get a sense of them. Prume is excellent. He's, that, that's the butler. I love the butler. The Honourable Olive Byrne. She's a lovely character and really very moving. Obviously, the main female character is Anna herself, the secret countess of the title. Uh, and she is a wonderful creation from the author. Could you just, in a, in a few sentences, just describe her a little more? In the books, they often talk about this sort of incandescent quality. The, her nickname was Little Candle and Little Star back in Russia. She's, she's very heartfelt. She's pretty in her own way. She's lovely. She always wants the best. She wants to be useful. She, in a way, she wants to fit in. But also, she feels things very deeply and she cares. She cares about things. She cares about people. She cares about things. She does a very good job of sort of putting her upbringing that is long gone now behind her. Oh, she's just lovely. For me, it was potentially the only bugbear I had about her character was that I thought maybe she was a little bit too perfect, a little bit too lovely. And I couldn't see her flaws as apparently as in some other, other novels. Well, yes. And I suppose it, she seems perfect, particularly in Petersburg at the beginning. But when you look at her, again, I have the advantage of multiple readings here. You look at her again, she's actually quite outspoken, quite spirited. She's never the piece of furniture that a servant might be expected to be, as one of the characters puts it. She's herself when she can't stop that, really. Now, it's set at a very interesting time, the book, as you've said, just after the end of the First World War. And even though it's a fun, light-hearted read, it does cover some really difficult issues, like the horrendous number of young men who died in the war. And strangely enough, there's the theme of eugenics, which plays this quite central role. Now, I understand eugenics was a really popular movement at this time. And obviously elsewhere in Europe. Is that something that you found interesting? It didn't necessarily register the first time I read what or the impact the the views did because they're fairly well presented, but the and the impacts that has in the novel you can't avoid. But then when you're reading it more grown up, knowing a bit more of the world and the points of view, in in the background it's, it's rather chilling. It might be worth saying that this was originally published 40 years ago. Some of the attitudes have dated a bit and you might want to give a bit of a health warning to any younger readers who pick it off the shelf. I, I haven't read any of Eva Ibbotson's adult or young adult books before and I, I understand there are four others in this series. The Reluctant Heiress, A Company of Swans, The Morning Gift and A Song for Summer. Have you read any of those? I think A Reluctant Heiress is also known as Magic Flutes and that's the one I've read and particularly enjoyed. In some ways it's quite similar. That was the one that stuck with me and that I've also got a copy of. I have heard very good things about Company of... Actually, I think it's both of them, Song of Summer and Company of Swans, so I think they need to go on the to-read list. I, I think I'm right in saying that, that these books were written as adult novels and then kind of repackaged by her publishers as young adult novels, which apparently Eva Ibbotson found quite surprising. Yes, I'd, I'd heard that as well. I can I can see why they did. That's probably why you, I can enjoy The Nine Grown Up, because they sort of work for adults as well. In some ways, they m might work better as a young adult novel. Yeah, and as you say, though, I mean, it's the kind of thing that you can revisit whatever age really and, and I think people can definitely find enjoyment no matter what. I think it's one of those things isn't it, calling something young, young adult doesn't mean that it's exclusively that. Um, but she is, she does have a whole host of children's books as well and I think she's best known for um, 
a journey to the river sea which won loads of awards a few years ago i remember my children loving that one i haven't read it but i i do love star of kazan um which i read about the same time actually i was a bit old for that one it was more of a children's book but it has a liprazana horse in it so i really to forgive it for just about anything and she actually wrote a children's story called the secret of platform 13 which bears a bit of similarity to uh one of our favorite yes yes that does sound rather familiar doesn't it i think that the premise of that one was that there's a secret door behind a platform at king's cross that takes you to a magical world the similarities between the first and the harry potter books has been duly noted although it seems that eva ibbotson was quite relaxed about it saying that writers always borrow from each other she was quite chilled and it should be said that hers came out first, three years before the Harry Potter yeah. books. <laughs> so if there's any copying going on or any borrowing going on, it was uh, not not by Eva Ibbotson. And Kate, you were talking about the, the fact that it's set just after the war and particularly just after the Russian Revolution. And it is, and also more, more explicitly, the impact of the war. I mean, Rupert, the Earl of Westerholm, one of the other main characters, he was in the Royal Flying Corps. He loses his brother on the Somme. In fact, very early on in the book, they sort of do almost the death roll of Mersham and you've got a hall boy who lies about his age. A gardener's gone. The maids have all gone to work in factories. Rupert's lucky, twice lucky to be alive. The Royal Flying Corps did not have a long life expectancy and he makes it all the way through. I was really interested to see how much of her own life influenced her writing. I mean, obviously she grew up through the uh, Second World War, but you can see that it's the same sort of themes of destruction and escape that she experienced in her own life come through in her writing, because she came from a Jewish family and had to escape Vienna in the 1930s. And apparently this journey is a kind of theme which crops up in a fair number of her books. And I think you can see reflected in this book too. Are there any other books that you've read recently that you'd recommend? Yes, more an adult book, but it's by Rachel Hoare, A Beautiful Spy. It's set in 1920s, 1930s, with a young lady being recruited to spy on communists in England. We always think about the, the SOE and the spying element in World War II, but this is a pre-World War II spying activity going on. But it, it isn't just a gung-ho James Bond sort of spy novel. It really gets at the emotional and personal cost of that job, which I haven't seen in other books. Oh, and of course, House at Riverton, set in another country house, in some ways similar, again adult. I love that as well. Don't be put off by the dark blurb. The book is far less dark than the blurb makes out. Uh, that's Kate Morton. It was her first one. Did she write The Lake House? Is that, an, or am I thinking of another author? Yes, yeah, she wrote The Lake House, also Clockmaker's Daughter, which I absolutely adore. Okay, so we have been talking about The Secret Countess by Eva Ibbotson. Thank you so much for that recommendation, Amory, and we'll look forward to seeing you in Borden Library sometime soon. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's great to finally see in-person events returning to libraries rather than only having them online. However brilliant some of those online events were. There's um, some comedy coming up with shows from Alfie Moore and Mark Watson in September. I really enjoy Alfie Moore. It's a fair cop on Radio 4, so I really want to go and see him there. And a talk with renowned historian and author Alison Weir in October. Yeah, Mark Watson's really funny as well. Take a look at our events pages on the Hampshire Library's website for more information about these events, where you'll also find details of our Scrabble and our knitting drop-in sessions, which have now made a welcome return. 
And we've got rhyme time and baby play sessions running at libraries every week, which are, uh, I know are hugely beneficial to parents and children alike. There are also summer reading challenge themed craft workshops during the school holidays. The summer reading challenge is such a great way for primary school children to have fun with reading while they're off from school. And it's fantastic that so many have signed up already. I reckon 13,000 children must be about one in 10 primary school aged children in Hampshire. And as of the time of recording, there's still loads of time to join as the challenge runs right up until the 18th of September. You can sign up through our website where you'll also find lots of puzzles and activities. And don't forget, everyone who takes part will have a chance to win a Samsung Galaxy tablet. Now, with the Olympic Games coming to a close, you might be missing your daily dose of sports action. But if they've inspired you to read something sporty, you'll find a really good range of suggestions in one of our library blogs this month. You should be able to find it easily enough by searching for Hampshire Library's blog, but we'll include a link in our show notes just so you don't miss it. I love some of the suggestions included in the blog. For example, there's Marcus Rashford's book, You Are a Champion which is apparently just as inspiring for adults as it is for children. You'll also find information on our blog about August's Author of the Month at Hampshire Libraries. This time it's Ian McEwan. Yes, this is the Hampshire Library's monthly focus on one particular writer that we love. So each month you'll find displays of that author's work and information about them at each of our libraries, as well, of course, as on our library blogs. Okay, so now for a roundup of a few titles included in our unlimited collection on BorrowBox for the month. These are ebooks and audiobooks, which you don't have to wait to download to read or listen to, even if loads of other people have borrowed them. You'll find the list on our podcast notes. So one of them is a Love Your Library favourite, TM Logan, who we featured in the May edition of the podcast. On our Unlimited BorrowBox collection this month is his bestseller, The Holiday, which is about three families on the trip of a lifetime to a luxury villa in the south of France, which turns into the holiday of nightmares. There's also the audiobook of The Murderous Son by Joy Ellis, which is narrated by no less than Richard Armitage. I am finding nowadays my choice of audiobook is led as much by the narrator as, as it is by the author. Yeah, I think if you know the narrator is good, then it's likely the story's going to be good too. The publishers clearly got confidence in a writer if they're investing in the voiceover talents of someone of Richard Armitage's profile. As always, one of the featured titles for August is also our virtual book club choice. You'll find links to this online reading group on the Hampshire Library's Facebook page. This month it's the intriguingly titled The Girl Who Reads on the Metro by Christine Ferret-Fleury. A French novel, translated thankfully, about the power of books and an enchanted bookshop. What more could you want? So download the book and join the conversation through our Hampshire Library's Facebook group. And that's it for our pick of BorrowBox for the month. Yes, and thanks once again to BorrowBox for supporting this podcast. Don't forget, you can use BorrowBox to download audiobooks and ebooks for free with Hampshire Libraries. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the podcast. I'm Kate Price McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac. <laughs>